0: Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25 this morning, covered a large chunk last week for those of you that weren't here, and so uh, we're all the way up into verse 12 of chapter 11. In the summer of 1998, the sporting world was abuzz as the country turned its collective attention to its old pastime, baseball, baseball. Together, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, they were chasing history. Both sought to break Roger Maris' home run record of 61 in a season, and both would succeed. McGuire would be the home run king, finishing with 70, while Sosa would take home the National League MVP honors after hitting 66. Just three short years later, Barry Bonds would topple McGuire's record by noshing an astonishing 73 home runs in a single season. It's At this point, suspicions that the athletes had gained a competitive advantage through the use of performance-enhancing drugs began to rise. In 2005, McGuire and Sosa, along with nine other players, were subpoenaed to appear before the United States Congress for hearing on the matter. Bonds wasn't invited to testify because he was considered the primary focus of the investigation. McGuire, Sosa, and Bonds together all denied having ever used steroids. However, years later, after many investigations in the release of the now infamous Mitchell Report and a confession from McGuire, it became obvious that these boys of summer had cheated themselves the fans, and the game. Not dissimilar from Lance Armstrong, who spoke out strongly against performance-enhancing drugs only to be found out years later. You know, a hypocrite is a person that presents themselves as one thing when in fact they are another. A hypocrite is a person who presents themselves as one thing when in fact they are another. You don't become a hypocrite just by uh, periodically failing to live up to uh, a particular standard. If if that were the case, we would all be hypocrites. But I think one becomes a hypocrite when they settle into their hypocrisy long-term rather than rooting it out. There's an obvious difference between the person who struggles against hypocrisy and the one who is defined by it. In our text today, we're going to see that The Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, that is, the Sanhedrin, the chief priest, and the scribes, have been presenting themselves as one thing when, in fact, they are another. These religious leaders give the outward appearance of great spirituality and devotion to God. But in truth, they are completely devoted to themselves. They appear to be flourishing, but in fact, they are fruitless, They believe themselves to be a beacon of light unto the world when in reality they belong to it. As a result, Jesus will curse the religious leaders, condemn the Jewish center of worship, and replace both with himself. My goal this morning is to show you that the main idea of this text is that Jesus curses the fruitless and blesses the nations. That's Jesus curses the fruitless and blesses the nation. Further, I want to exhort you to produce the fruit of faith by abiding in Christ. That's our one big thing this morning. That which I want you to think about as you apply it to your life throughout the week is to produce the fruit of faith by abiding in Christ. We're going to unpack the text in just two parts this morning rather than three. This was originally a really, really big sermon uh, due to the way that Mark lays it out, but just two parts, the tree and the temple, the tree and the temple. Let's pray together and then we'll dive on in. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for bringing us together here in this place. Imperfect people across generations. Broken people. Father, we thank you that you got us up out of bed this morning. For many of us, that was no easy task. Thank you for bringing us here despite uh, rebelling children for some of us. Thank you for bringing us here despite our desires to the contrary that we might hear from you. Lord, be our satisfaction. Meet us in this place. Meet our hearts so that they become soft and can be shaped more after your own. Help us to listen well and to hear your voice. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So after going into the temple just before in verse 11, he made that huge entry in. It was a little anticlimactic, as I said. Uh, But after making that huge entrance, Jesus looked around at everything and then said, let's go home and and hit the sack. I'm a little bit tired. And so they went back out to Bethany to sleep. And here they are waking up and coming back in Jerusalem, with everyone else, and and I say everyone else because it is the week of Passover, which means that Jerusalem is fuller than full of people. It's packed out. There would have been up to ten times the normal population in Jerusalem right now. And so hundreds and thousands of people had to find places to stay, and there are no Hamptons or Hiltons, and so what they would do is some would stay in the city itself, some would stay with their friends, and still others would just stay in the fields. They would pitch tents, and then they would wake up in the morning and make their way into the city. And so you, you can think of it a little bit like this. Jesus and the disciples, they're outside of the city. They wake up, wake up in the morning. They hop into their 15-passenger va- van. There's just 12 of them. So they're in their 15-passenger van, and they are on their way. They're making their morning c- commute into Jerusalem when, when Jesus realizes Man, I left my pop tart on the counter. I didn't even get my coffee. I'm hungry. Let's pause for a second there. I mean, do you understand how incredible this is? Jesus was hungry. I mean think about it, just, just for a moment. The creator of all things, the sustainer of life, the mighty God of the universe, is hungry. Why? because he chose to take on flesh and become a man like other men, that he might rightly represent humanity before God and serve as our substitute. Jesus comes to be the new Adam, Paul tells us in Romans. I mean, you guys remember Adam, right? He was humanity's representative all the way back in the Garden of Eden when everything was good, everything was in harmony. But he failed to live a completely God-centered life And he chose to obey himself rather than the Father. As a result of that disobedience, sin infiltrated everything. The sickness of sin flooded his veins and now runs in our blood. Now all people are out of harmony with our true purpose, which is to worship and obey God as our joy with our whole hearts. And this is why Jesus comes, to be our new representative. And where the old Adam failed, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, would succeed. He would live a perfectly obedient life to God so that when we identify with him as our representative, his righteousness, his goodness becomes our own. It's given to us, imputed to us. And we avoid the right penalty for our sins. The, the right penalty for our sin, for our wrongdoing, is physical death and eternal separation from God. That's what we've earned. But Jesus, on behalf of those who place their faith in, them, in Him, takes this penalty. We can enjoy forgiveness because Jesus took on flesh, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead. Victorious over death and sin. Jesus unites those that have faith in him with himself, places us in fellowship with God, and will give us new bodies when he changes earth into heaven, wipes every tear from the eye, and makes all things new. He gives us abundant life. In order to give us this abundant life, to give us this peace with God, Jesus had to become one of us, he had to become a man. He had to become hungry. I mean, it really is unbelievable what God has done for us. I mean, apart from a miracle of God, who could believe this? And that's why Paul writes, the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing, but to those that are being saved, it's the power of God. Language is, it's inadequate to describe the miracle God does when he secures life for us. And enables us to take hold of that life by giving us the gift of faith in Christ. It's amazing. And for it to be possible, God had to subject himself to hunger. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. This is a central tenet of orthodox Christian belief, and it is utterly astounding. It should blow you away. If you're you're interested in reading more about why God had to become a man, I would like to recommend to you uh, a book that was written in the 11th century by a guy named Anselm. Its title in Latin is Curdeus Homo. It actually means, Why did God become a man? You can read it in English. Uh, It'll be helpful to you. It's a really good read. Anyhow, Jesus is hungry. He and the disciples are on their commute into Jerusalem. In verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus and the disciples are in the 15-passenger van. They're headed down I-64. They're on their way into the city, making their morning commute. Jesus realizes, I left my Pop-Tart on the table and my coffee in the cup. Oh, man, I am hungry. And then, he sees it. It's a sign. It says, hot and fresh. It's a Krispy Kreme. So quickly, they do a two-lane shuffle in their 15-passenger van. They take the exit, and they begin walking into the Krispy Kreme donut shop. Jesus might get his hand on some eclairs, maybe. Maybe a little fig-filled donut. But upon entering the donut shop, the terrible happens. There are no workers, no donuts, no coffee, but only kale, demonic kale. So Jesus and the disciples hang their head defeated. They get back in their van and begin continuing on their commute. And as they pull out of the parking lot, Jesus says, curse this Krispy Kreme that lights up the hot and fresh sign but has no doughnuts within. Let no one ever eat here again. See, the story of the fig tree is an object lesson. It's a visual parable, and it becomes a prediction about what's about to happen in the temple. The fig tree is showing all the signs of having figs, or at least the small beginnings of them, but in actuality, it's nothing but leaves. The tree is presenting itself as one thing, when in fact... It is another. The tree is a hypocrite. It appears to be flourishing, but it is fruitless. It's got the hot now sign on, but there is nothing inside. Jesus is still hungry at this point. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, And maybe even a little frustrated, but he does not sin. He does not curse the tree because he's throwing some kind of temper tantrum like, like a kid in Walmart in the checkout lane that wants candy. That's not what he's doing. It's not a you're-not-you-while-you're-hungry Snickers commercial deal either, right? He has a purpose. Jesus is infinitely wise. I mean, remember, he's just been in the temple the day before. He looked around. He saw what was going on, and they're on their way now, and he sees this tree, and he says, you know what? There's no fruit here. I'm kind of a little bit angry, but this is also a teaching moment because the temple is just like this tree looks like one thing when in fact it is another. Jesus' curse on the tree will cause it to wither to its roots, which you'll see down in verse 20. But really, I think Jesus' curse actually just causes the tree to show the truth about itself, which is even though it seems to be flourishing, it's actually failing. It's actually very dead. Likewise, he will curse the religious leaders and the temple so that the truth about them will be made known to everyone, that they are lifeless. Also, it's important to point out, if you remember way back when I I used the illustration, I said that I liked sandwiches one day and that uh, the middle of the sandwich is what kind of defines it. So if you have a hamburger between two pieces of bread, it's a hamburger, ham sandwich. You have ham between two pieces of bread, it's a ham sandwich. We talked about how Mark makes literary sandwiches, right? That he'll take one story, split it apart, and put another story in the middle. That's the structure of this little section that we're looking at. Because he's told us part of the fig story, the story of the fig tree. Now he's going to tell us about what goes on in the temple, and then he's going to go back to the fig tree. Now we're not going to get to the second outer red part, which is when they go back to the fig tree and see it withered today, uh, because I just got too wordy, there's just too much here. Uh, but we're just covering those, both two par- both those first two parts, and we need to be aware that this is the structure that Mark intends for us, and the reason he does that is because the stories inform one another, right? The fig tree helps us to understand the temple, and the temple helps us to understand the fig tree, and Jesus is teaching us through both. He's saying that he sees through fruitlessness, He sees through the leaves. He sees through the show. and He sees the heart. He curses the fruitless. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. In Jewish life, the temple... Is the center. It's the place where the presence of God dwells. God had promised to bless Israel and all nations through the temple. It was to be a true place of piety. The temple was the means by which Israel was to be a light to the world. But instead, it became an excuse for nationalism and racism and oppression. See, the temple had been intended to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the world. However, it had come to symbolize not God's welcome of the nations, but his exclusion of them. In fact, Israel had so strayed from her purpose that they had begun to popularly believe that the Messiah, when he showed up, would purge the temple of the Gentiles, that he would get rid of everybody that was not Jewish. It's important to note that that when you stepped into the temple, first area that you got to was called the court of the gentiles or the court of the nations this was the only part of the temple where non-jewish folk were allowed It was also the biggest section of the temple and you had to, you had to go through it to get to the rest this is the area where gentiles are supposed to find god through quiet reflection and prayer and this is the area that jesus comes into in verse 15. This is the area he begins driving people out of because it had been wrongfully commercialized. The court of the Gentiles had been turned into a a flea market for livestock and financial trading. So so let me explain a little bit. People, it's Passover, would always come into Jerusalem during Passover and, and throughout the rest of the year as well, but especially during Passover, and they would need to bring an acceptable, that is a perfect, sacrifice. And the sacrifice would have to pass this temple inspection, right? It had to be FDA-approved as a perfectly acceptable sacrifice, and then they could make it. And so what what would happen is uh, the religious leaders, they set up a system that allowed people to actually buy the sacrifice on site. You could buy a temple-approved animal right there in the temple without having to drag it with you miles and miles and miles to Jerusalem. And so lots of people took advantage of this. It, it just made sense. It got rid of the difficulty of, of hauling an animal with you. You know, you buy it at home, and then you have to feed it. You have to take it with you and make sure it doesn't get hurt, right? It eliminated the possibility of, of your sacrifice being made impure by, you know, getting attacked by other animals or some other type of unfortunate event. So it's kind of a good good idea, right? But here is the rub, Right? The markup on the animals was shameful and immoral, right? Even those who brought their own sacrifices to the temple, they were often forced to purchase a temple-approved one, right? They would find some, something wrong with it, so they would have to buy one of the temple's sacrifices. Some estimate that the, uh, the mafia, I'm sorry, the, the temple priests, charged 16 times the normal price. So if a pigeon no- normally served for 20, sold for $0.25, cent, in the temple, that same pigeon was going to cost you $4, right? And most of the people that are buying pigeons, they're very, very poor. So they're preying on the poor here, right? It's a little bit like uh, if you've ever gone to a movie theater or an amusement park, you pay like 10 bucks for popcorn and $5 for a soda. It's really immoral, right? That's what's going on in the temple, taking advantage of people. Additionally, the temple refuses to take foreign money or any money with, quote-unquote, idolatrous images on it. So, Roman money is no good here. And what you had to do is you had to go get your money exchanged, just like if you take the American dollar into China. Well, well they'll take your dollars, but you want to exchange that for uh, some quai is what they call it. I think it's actually called a yin, but quai is what they call it there, so that they can accept it and more easily uh, go about business, And so what they did was they'll say, well, exchange your idolatrous money with Caesar's picture on it and give you some temple-approved money that you can use here. That's so nice of them. uh, But what they did was they charged an outrageous fee for the exchange, right? They're making money. They're lining their pockets. I mean, the enormity of the temple industry uh, can't really be fully appreciated. Josephus, uh, who's a historian, notes that in A.D. 66, the year the temple was completed, he estimates that 255,600 lambs were sacrificed for the Passover. That's a lot of lambs. So, not only was the temple functioning as a place where extortion and bribery and greed were prevalent, but it had also become a shortcut. That's what you see in verse 16 become a shortcut to quickly get from one side of the city to another. So, if you're coming from the east, instead of going around the temple, what you would do is you would just cut through the court of the Gentiles. It was quicker. And so all this works together to show us that the place where the Gentiles are supposed to be learning about God has been turned into a sacrificial shopping mall. A place, a parking lot really, where people cut across with their U-Hauls to get to the other side of the city. There's buying and selling and money changing. But there is no seeking of God. God has been thoroughly crowded out of the temple complex. I wonder... What is crowding God out of your life? What keeps you from regular church attendance or prayer or reading the Bible or having someone over for dinner or spending time with other Christians or ministering to your family? What things in your life are crowding God out? So it's into this pseudo-stock market that Jesus steps, and it's here that he turns green with holy anger. He flips over tables and chairs, and he begins to drive out those who would oppress the poor with their greed. He drives them out, John tells us, with a whip of cords. This is not docile, domesticated in a field with kids on his lap and bunnies at his side and a rainbow above his head. Jesus This is not the nice Jesus created by squishy evangelicals and apologetic liberals. This is not flannel graph Jesus. This is the biblical Jesus. And he's not always nice. He's fierce. You know, niceness has never been a primary or supreme characteristic of Jesus. Is he holy? Yes. Loving? More than you could comprehend. Merciful beyond measure. Compassionate without end. But he's not these things in exclusion of his justice and his severity. In fact, his anger is a consequence of his love. In the same way that you would expect a husband to be filled with righteous and jealous anger if his wife were unfaithful, so too God is rightly filled with jealous anger when his people choose to play the harlot with someone else. Jesus loves the Father. Jesus loves his people. And so he passionately and physically protests the fruitlessness of the temple. And for a brief moment, at least in one part of the temple complex, Jesus had restored it to its rightful purpose, the worship of God. I mean, given the size of the court of the Gentiles, it's it's highly unlikely that he brought the whole operation to a standstill, but nevertheless, Mark makes it clear that there is no doubt Jesus' protest had become, sorry, that the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders had become aware of Jesus' protest. Furthermore, his protest isn't, it's not just physical here, it's didactic. He doesn't just physically protest the temple's hypocrisy, he curses it with his teaching. Look at verse 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written? My house, I wonder how he said my house too, by the way, if it was like really strong, like this is my house. So it's written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for the nation, but you have made it a den of of robbers. His words here are actually the combination of two quotations from the Old Testament, one from Isaiah chapter 56 and the other from Jeremiah 7 11. And so to understand him, we're going to look at each very quickly, and I would like to put the first in its context. And so let me read to you Isaiah chapter 56, starting with verse 3 going on down through verse 7. "'Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say,' The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuchs say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Notice prayer here is going to be a word that envelops all the parts of worship. It's not just prayer, it's everything joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. And here it is, for all peoples, for all nations. God's temple is to be a house of prayer, a place of worship that attracts and blesses all the nations. It's to exhibit no geographical, national, racial, or ethnic segregation or discrimination. Israel has somehow missed this point, though and popularly believed the Messiah to be a racist that would purge the temple of Gentiles. But Jesus comes and cleanses the temple, not of all peoples, not of the Gentiles, but for the Gentiles, for all peoples, and this is part and partial to why they are so shocked, those around as well as the religious leaders. Before we press into that, though, I can't help but wonder how similar to Israel we are. I mean, are we like Israel? Guilty of sinful racism, favoritism, and nationalism. I think uh, as a whole that we probably are and that we probably need to repent. Not prob- we definitely need to repent. I think many of us, if we're honest, deep down think that God is somehow more concerned with the United States than he is with Syria or that he loves white middle-class people more than he does poor Latin Americans. This lies. Maybe even some of us think that God should forgive our sins, which really aren't that bad, but not the sins of others, which are way worse. No one, by virtue of family or country or race or anything else, has a right to God or a monopoly on his love. Jesus died not for one nation or to separate people according to ethnicity, but to unite them as his children. That's why John 1.12 says, all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. That's the requirement. The new family that God creates is defined not by race or ethnicity or political ties, but by producing the fruit of the kingdom which is the result of faith in Christ. And so we ask again, are you guilty of excluding others from the same care that Jesus offers you? Let me phrase it this way. Do you share God's heart for the nations? The Jewish religious leaders certainly did not. That's why they turned the temple, which was to be the place where God's people gave instruction in God's ways that's why they've turned it into a den of thieves that's part of Jesus quotation of Jeremiah 7:11 which reads has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes behold i myself have seen it declares the lord the verse Jesus quotes here actually falls in a part of Jeremiah where he is denouncing all the idolatry of the temple back then he's, he's calling out their hypocrisy and their false religion. And so Jesus is making the same proclamation about the religious leaders of the temple he is currently in. He is saying the existence of this temple is not a guarantee of God's approval. In fact, your corrupt worship is unacceptable, and this temple stands condemned. Imagine the words of Amos 5 also would ring true. This is where God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God says to the hypocrites in the temple, Shut up! I don't want to hear it. Your religious activity means nothing. Imagine the words of Isaiah 29 quoted by Jesus in Mark 7, 6 also apply. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, the Jewish religious leaders are doing all the right external things. They have the right behavior. They're coming to church on Sunday morning. They're going to the prayer meeting on Sunday night. They're calling people during the week. They're visiting, but their hearts are wicked. They present themselves as those who are after God's own heart when in reality their hearts are far from him. These hypocrites present themselves as flourishing, but they are fruitless. And together with the temple, they are under the curse of Christ. Dr. Aiken notes here, the temple had failed in its divine assignment and would be destroyed. With no fruit, its use was at an end. God would remove it, and in less than a generation, the Romans would destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The temple was meant to bring people into God's presence, but instead it had been so perverted and twisted that it actually obscured God's presence. It's funny how a great show can mask a lack of substance sacrifices, songs, prayers, and offerings of the people all seemed to point to a vibrant spiritual life. They had all the cool worship songs. They had their fog machines going. People frenzied up into a worship moment. But when you peeled back the onion and looked at the heart, the reality was that there was only death. Is this true of our church? All show, no substance? Is it true of you? Does God hate your religious activity because your heart is far from him? I think a good way to kind of take your spiritual temperature about these things, and Jesus is going to give us some examples next week as we look at the second part of this. But I think one of the primary ways we can take our spiritual temperature is by looking at our prayer life. I mean, are, are you praying? I always recommend praying for my preaching because the Lord knows it needs it. Uh, praying for your listening, praying for the sick and for the nations, for our friends, for our church by working through the directory each week. You, you can pick that up on the way out if you don't have one already. Praying for our own hearts. I mean, are, are you doing that? Are you meeting with and delighting in God in prayer? Are you thanking Him for His generosity? Are you adoring His beauty? Are you confessing your sin? Are you drinking deeply of His mercy and His grace? I think one of the reasons we often find our hearts cold to the things of Christ, our Christianity lukewarm and ourselves thinking, I just, God feels so distant and far from me is because we are prayerless. And prayer is the fuel of for all of the Christian life, yet we somehow always fall prey to prayerlessness. We're always vulnerable to it. Jesus says in verse 17 that his house is to be called the house of prayer, which I mentioned is uh, kind of a catch-all term for all the aspects of worship. But if you'll allow me to stretch, I think prayer is certainly part of all of those things. If you'll allow me to stretch, let me ask you. If your prayer life became the status quo for our church, could it be called a house of prayer? If your prayer life became the standard for our church, could it be called a house of prayer? A great show can mask a lack of substance. Does your spiritual life all show and no substance? Friends, don't be so foolish as to think your show masks your lack of substance from Christ. Jesus knows your heart. He curses the fruitless and the false. He knows those that are his and those who are not. Verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, the crowd is astonished because Jesus is challenging the sacrificial system altogether and saying that the Gentiles, the pagan, the unwashed Gentiles could now go directly to God in prayer. Edwards comments here, he says, The combined effect of the quotations from Isaiah and Jeremiah is to assert that the Gentiles now have access to God's self-revelation to Israel on the basis of the sincerity of their hearts rather than by the legal and cultic purity. And this teaching astonishes the crowds, because it's good. And it angers the religious leaders because it's opposing them. Because Jesus is teaching all people can have access to God through him. The temple had always been the means by which people gained access to the presence of God. But Jesus is declaring, as he did in Matthew twelve six, something greater than the temple is here. I am. Jesus is the true and better temple. Jesus perfectly displays God's glory to the nations by offering the perfect sacrifice for sin. Himself on the cross and defeating the grave in His resurrection to secure eternal life with God for whosoever shall believe in Him. Whoever would confess with their mouth and believe in their heart can have life together with Christ. Jesus Christ put Himself where you belong under God's wrath, so that you could be where it is impossible for any man to belong, in the presence of God. Jesus loves you. He wants your heart, not, not your religion. It's after heart change, not behavior modification, not empty religious activity. Religious activity then and now cannot gain you peace with God. You cannot offer enough sacrifices or do enough good things to make restitution for your sin. You cannot rescue yourself from the hell that you deserve. But God can rescue you. You need only abide in Christ. To abide in Christ is to be in relationship with Him. It's having your faith in Him. It's trusting in His death, burial, and resurrection. It's always been God's agenda from the start of all things to bless all nations with Himself. That's His heart. The temple was supposed to bring the nations into God's presence. It failed. And so God brought His presence to the people by becoming a man, dying for the sins of man, and raising from the dead for man. So that, like Him, when we unite ourselves with Him by faith, we too can look forward to resurrection. Jesus is the true and better temple who succeeds in sharing God's beauty with all who will trust in Him. Jesus blesses all nations. Love what John writes at the end of Revelation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Jesus Christ. The most shocking part of Jesus' temple teaching is not his overturning tables, but his overturning of the sacrificial system and his opening up of the way into the presence of God for all people. Jesus is cursing the fruitless and blessing the nations. That's why the crowd is amazed, and that's why the religious brass is bloodthirsty. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy, that is kill, him. And when evening came, they went out of the city. It's ominous here this is really ominous if we remember the pharisees way back in chapter 3 verse 6 they were seeking to do the same thing it says they sought to destroy jesus or kill jesus but the stakes now are much higher see it's one thing for jesus to ruffle the feathers of the pharisees they're kind of like country preachers if you want to think of it that way it's another thing to gain the ire of the chief priest and the powerful sanhedrin Jesus is not in Kansas anymore. He's not in Galilee anymore. This is Jerusalem. This is the big leagues. And in Jerusalem, prophets get killed for upsetting the apple cart. Jesus, who unveiled himself as the true Messiah King and entered the city humbly on the back of a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, is now exerting his authority in the temple. It's fun the other accounts do tell us that those shouts of Hosanna continued on this day as he healed the blind and the sick. Yet those who were supposed to be most fruitful, those who were supposed to be most joyed at His presence, those who should have been filled with love and bowed down at His feet and crowned Him Lord of all, those who should have recognized Him sought to kill Him. These religious leaders had made it appear that they were devoted to God when, in fact, they hated Him. So much so that they would kill His Son. Hypocrisy defined them. What about you? Does hypocrisy define you? What if Jesus came to our church? Would he be pleased? Would he turn over tables? How would you respond? Would you be filled with love ready to crown him? Or would you be filled with fear and hate ready to kill him? Jesus says in John fifteen five and 6, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, like the fig tree. And the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus curses the fruitless and blesses the nations. Don't be like the hypocritical religious leaders. All show and no substance. Produce the fruit of faith by abiding in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this teaching. Lord, we know how susceptible to sin we are. How wandering our hearts can be how we foolishly are, are prone to look after and look to things aside from you to, to bring us satisfaction and joy. Father, we need this word that you gave to the Pharisees into the temple. We need this warning about the cursing that you give to those that rebel against you. Father, help us, give us humble hearts. Submit our lives to your Lordship that we might know what true life is, what true joy is, what true satisfaction is. Oh Lord, help us to walk with you. Help us to not be those that are all show and no substance. Help us to not be fruitless, but make us fruitful. Help us to produce the fruit of faith, we pray. Amen.